welcome to the Heads Up Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Connor. Hello, Alan. <laughs> Hello, I'm here with Sultry Connor tonight. Yeah. Uh, this episode, we talk to Tommy Pilotta, um, who is the director of The Last Hijack, which is a it's a documentary with animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very interesting way of making a documentary. It's very it's kind of different. Um, there are it's it's about Somali pirates and uh, it's really interesting how they had to make it, which we talk about in the episode. Um, it, it was, isn't it? <laughs> As you would, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, but but I suppose the the other than that, other than the actual subject matter, the really interesting thing is in places where they couldn't be memories, uh, stories, and and actually hijacking cargo ships uh, it, it goes to animation and it's really beautiful animation um, there's like a, a metaphor of, of piracy which is a big kind of eagle and, and taking off and, and, and catching a cargo ship which is in all the trailers and the posters if you've seen them um, but it's just it's really beautiful and it's it's kind of a great does look stunning it's really yeah, yeah it's really yeah. really good uh, Tommy Pilata is um, he works a lot with Richard Linklater. Uh, he produced uh, Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly, and he's a director in his own right. He was in, and Slacker, and he was actually an actor in Slacker, which I have to go back and rewatch now. Uh, I didn't. Was he in that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I have to go back because <laughs> now that I've met him, I want to see who is he when he was uh, a, a younger man. <laughs> who is this man we were talking to in, in 1991? Um, yeah, he plays. He plays a character called. Looking for missing friend. <laughs> they could have come up with a better title for his character. Um, so yeah, Tommy is a very interesting man. Uh, very cool and kind of chilled. Very out cool, as well. very chilled out, very relaxed. We arrived and we were like, yeah, <laughs> like just out of breath, getting there. Just yeah. we just had ran from uh, <clears throat> yeah wherever we arrived Lombard Street to IFI. Yes, yeah, we arrived exactly on time. That's a lie. We drove from Lombard Street, yeah. <laughs> parked on Fleet Street, but we're so unfit that we were uh, wrecked by the time we got to the Wi-Fi. Yeah, we, we arrived exactly on time for an interview that we really needed to be early for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> um, but we got set up and uh, he didn't seem to mind. He was Not what I mean. He was just really kind of cool, just chilled um, out. Just Yeah, we actually had a good mm-hmm. conversation off mic, which is lost to uh, the annals of history, unfortunately. So It's forever ingrained uh, in my mind. Yeah, he, he's a big fan of podcasting. Yeah, uh, which we never talked we never talked about it on the episode, unfortunately. Yeah, um, but he, he likes podcasts as well. Yeah, you know. Uh, so don't be surprised if you see a Tommy Pilata podcast coming out soon. <laughs> <laughs> he said he liked podcasts. I think he said that our podcast is his favorite podcast. I, of I all like time. podcasting. It's a pity that the rest of podcasts haven't reached the standard of the Heads of Podcast. <laughs> I think that might be the exact. I think quote. that's a direct quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if he's got a problem with us saying that, he can sorry, talk sorry. to our lawyer. Sorry, Sammy. <laughs> uh, yeah, he said he definitely said something like that. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, he's 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 great to talk to. He's he's very knowledgeable about his um, his his subject, obviously, and uh, he's he's a really really nice man. And um, that's that's uh, Connor's phone. Going yeah, on. someone's ringing me. <laughs> Do you want to answer that there? On yeah, the... just one second. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Can I, I actually be able to ring you back in just about uh, 10 minutes? Um, is it, okay, all right. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, okay, bye. So, is somebody interesting? No, um, I don't know. <laughs> I'll find out in 10 minutes. Okay. Well, uh, I hope that wasn't Tommy Pilata's lawyers going. Jesus he did not say Christ. that. It actually might be. <laughs> uh, 
no, he's much too nice for that. And he he definitely said it, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here's uh, the uh, Tommy Pilata episode of the Headstuff Podcast. Uh, so, Tommy Pilata, welcome to the Headstuff Podcast. Thank you. Nice Thank to you. be here. Yeah, uh, we're here with Connor as well. Hello. Um, so, uh, I watched The Last Hijack last night. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. Cool. Um, and I want to talk to you about a lot of it. All right. <laughs> if that's okay with you, I'm sure I'm, you're talking about it all day. <laughs> I, I'll, if I get offended, I'll just leave. So Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's perfectly fine. I mean, we'll just fill in, we'll fill in the gaps. Yeah. Um, if we can get you to make most noises there, uh, so we can make, just make sentences out of the noises. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll try and do an impression. Yeah. Yeah. Connor can fill in. <laughs> um, maybe we'll just start with a little bit of uh, um, background about, about yourself. Uh, so did you grow up in Texas? Or just, you yeah, know, grew up in Texas. Oh, Okay. I uh, was lucky enough to, uh, I was going to the University of Texas there and uh, studying philosophy. Met a guy named Richard Linklater who was mm-hmm. making a movie that became known as Slacker. Mm-hmm. And I was a PA on it and I was in it. And then, yeah. um, and then it, he, he was very confident that he was going to find an audience for it. And I saw the film very early on and I thought it was extremely experimental. And I mean, I loved it, but it's, I knew everybody in it. Right. And, uh, and then it sort of captured a zeitgeist and it actually got distributed. And, you know, it was sort of all of a sudden they were playing the clip that I was in on, on um, Siskel and Ebert. It was like these two TV uh, film reviewers. And it just sort of hit me like, oh my God, somebody from Texas who didn't go to film school, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have any connections in New York or LA, yeah. made a movie that, that audiences all across America were seeing and, and were like writing about. And it wasn't a mainstream film, yeah. but it had kind of broken through that bubble and mainstream publications were writing about it. And so I thought, well hell I want to do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it's kind of just the way you, you describe that the way it just kind of this in a way it sounds like this guy made a film with some people he knows in it um it, a lot of the most interesting directors kind of start in that way I'm thinking like people like Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson they just kind of make a film yeah and then it somehow gets distributed and then all of a sudden they turn into this kind of massive brilliant filmmaker right um, and the same kind of happened with Richard Linklater it, it sounds really easy but the thing no not that it's easy yeah, that's yeah, not the, what I'm trying the, to get at. <laughs> the, the, the thing that I've like found out in my life you know when I when I've met a lot of these people is that like they're just really intelligent hardworking people yeah and they probably were going to be successful at whatever they were right. set their heart out you know to do right um, and and they're also kind of like common sense people as well yeah and um and I think that like film right now is kind of going through like music did like in the eighties and nineties where everybody just kind of wanted to be in the band and they thought like, right. Hey, we're going to go out, we're going to be a grunge band. We're going to be, you know, yeah. super famous yeah. and stuff. And now because the equipment is so ubiquitous, everybody has the film, you know, basically a filming and ed- editing apparatus in their phone now, yes, yeah. you know, that you can make a movie. And so now everybody's like, Oh, I want to be a filmmaker. And there's just a glut of, of, uh, of content now, which yeah. didn't exist back then when all those guys started that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to see how um, that's going to play out. But I, again, I think like telling stories is hard work um, yeah. and, and telling good stories that are engaging to people is hard work. And, and then finding an audience and finding it, making it marketable is even harder work. Right. So um, I think it's always a challenge. Yeah. What do you think? Like, do you have a kind of perfect film like a, a film that would maybe inspire you to make a film like has a story ever been told in a way that really yeah i mean i 
there's a lot of films I like. There's a lot of TV shows I like. I mean, I just like stories. There's a lot yeah. of time. Like I, I was listening to a guy talk at my daughter's school the other day and I was completely engaged. And, and we were talking about like podcast earlier, Yeah, you know, that I, I get like, I'm sort of like, I just love stories. Yeah. And, um, and like in terms of like, I, I was never like the guy who like I had to make movies and I knew that I wanted to make movies when I was a little kid and all that stuff. It really was sort of seeing Linklater do what he did. And I sort of thought it was interesting and, and, you know, sort of fell into it. And I just kept on becoming more and more ambitious with my own projects. Right. Um, but what was it? The question was, is just, there a is movie there like a, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I love Raging Bull, you know, okay. I like, like for me that that's like a, a great film. Yeah. Um, because you don't have to know who Jake LaMotta is. You don't have to you know, be a boxing fan. Mm-hmm. It really taps into like a universal, um, you know, story that it seems almost like Greek in its mythology, you yeah. know, and it's a tragic. And, um, and I think like the editing, the cinematography, the sound design, the acting, the directing, you know, just like every single aspect of that really sort of comes together. Yeah. I love Stanley Kubrick's movies, you know, yeah, right, a lot yeah. of those. Um, I like, you know, I, I, I think one of my favorite movies when I was younger was with nail and I by Bruce okay. Robinson, oh, yeah. you know, like really simple yeah. movie about, you know, two guys yeah. moving out of London, trying to make it as actors. Yeah. Do you think there's anything more recently that's in the, in that kind of vein, the Kubricks, the, uh, Scorsese's, the, you know, I, I mean, I know Scorsese's still making films, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's who, who are kind of thing. Well, I mean, I, again, it's hard for me cause I, it's undeniable, like how big the influence of Richard Linklater was, on me just not right. because we're friends or whatever, but like I saw boyhood and, and I have, you know, like I was sort of blown away by that because right. it was shot on film and it felt so incredibly fresh and experimental in a way. But then it was a story that felt very personal to me. And again, he was able to take something that I thought would be marginalized about growing up in Texas. And then it's showing all around the world and people are talking about it. Yeah. And I thought like, that's again, I'm still have this like, like childlike wonderment and amazement that he's able to really sort of capture that. Yeah. And I assume you knew that was happening over the 10 year period. Yeah. Well, he was talking to me about while we we're making a uh, waking life. Oh, wow. And so like yeah. when we were shooting waking life it was like 99 or 2000. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So nice. yeah. yeah. So we started shooting it like right after that. And at that point did you, and, and he knew then that we're going to make this over yeah, t- yeah. the 10 year period. Yeah, and were yeah. you like, well, I thought it didn't make sense to me as a producer, right. like, <laughs> you know, like there's no money. Yeah. Um, there's no guarantee that you'd be able to sort of keep people together for, yeah. for that long. Yeah. Um, I, I was much younger back then and short sighted, you know, like I wish that I would produce that, of course, you right. know, like yeah. I was nominated for Academy Award and everything. Yeah. But, um, you know, again, um, you know, Linklater really has sort of a, he, he like when we met, we didn't even start talking about movies. We started talking about baseball and okay. baseball has a really long season. Yeah. You can have a really long career. Yeah. And I kind of think that that's sort of like his been his, his approach to movies has been more like a, a athlete and baseball in particular than like a filmmaker. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So like a marathon as opposed to a yeah. sprint kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you worked on, on waking life and scanner darkly, uh, and both obviously using, are they both rotoscope? Yes, they're both rotoscope. Um, so where did you first kind of, uh, I suppose, find rotoscoping? And, and how come, like, how did animation become kind of a big part of your... Well, after after the success of Slacker, I decided that I was going to be a director too. And I mm-hmm. directed a feature film. How soon after Slacker did you... Well, a couple of years. Okay. I mean, like, you know, I, don't, I can't even remember. 
right. uh, because it actually took like four years to make. And, okay. and most of the movies I make take about four years to make. That's oh. sort of what I, I figure. Um, but it was, I shot it on 16 millimeter. Um, I didn't really have a clue as to what I was doing. Rick had actually made a feature film before Slacker. He made a bunch of shorts before. Uh-huh. I was like a PA on his movie. And I was a, did a PA on a couple of commercials. And then I said, like, I'm going to just direct feature. Uh, <laughs> I got in way over my head um, in terms of I didn't have a producer. You know, I, I didn't have the money to, to do it. Yeah. And, you know, it just took a very long time to do it. And I did it. And it, it came out. And and then some personal things happened and I was just depleted. I right. mean, I was broke. I didn't, you know, have anything. And I thought like, I'd never want to make a movie again. And I also kind of saw that things were changing at that moment in time. This was probably like the mid nineties. Um, and also at that time, sort of animation started to, to become really mainstream with Pixar. Kind yes. Of was, right. was doing stuff and Toy Story came out. Yeah. And, um, and I was interested in the sort of visual aspects of it. And, um, I thought, I was interested in animation. I met a guy named Bob Sabiston who was doing animation and, uh, we got together and we started to, he had just done a short animated film that took him several years and we're, and so I was, and he was interested in like live action. So we started thinking like, well, what can we do that would be sort of bring the best of both worlds, like the visual aspects of animation, but then sort of the spontaneity of shooting with just a camera and getting that out. And we thought that there'd be a program that would allow you to draw over it. So the idea was that we'd always just sort of shoot something on video and mm-hmm. just draw over it. There wasn't at that time, but luckily he was a programmer. So he wrote a really simple program that allowed you to draw over the quick time oh, okay. um, oh, right, aspects okay. of it. Okay. And, um, you know, we did a couple of things. They started to get attention very quickly. And then we started making shorts um, with that. And then that sort of came, I was always friends with Rick. And then he had the idea of waking life. <laughs> And the more that we talked about the idea of waking life, especially at that time, I was using a bunch of digital cameras, which were new back then. <sighs> and he kind of wanted to do something like Slacker again. Right. But the more and more that we talked about it, the more we started thinking like, well, maybe we can use the animation technique that I was doing on the short films to do, to do waking life because it dealt with dreams and sort of like an alternate reality or mm-hmm. ontological, you know, things or whatever. But we knew that we wanted it to sort of be unstable and fall apart. And, and Rick was really into lucid dreaming at that time. And we were trying to think of like, well, how do you make it seem um, dreamlike, but also ha- have this sort of realism to it? Um, and so that's how that sort of came out. So that out. technique hadn't really been used before. You kind of came up with this idea in your yeah, head. Yeah, I think we were using it just on a couple of shorts before. Yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's nice to have kind of developed a technique and have your name attached to it. Well, it's a super old technique. Like, yeah, it's, I, it's, I the, it's the up, oldest. Yeah. It's the like the oldest one of the oldest animation techniques. Yeah, like, like the early 1900s, they were I doing rotoscoping. That. Yeah. Um, but I think at that, and and we we honestly just assumed that there would be a program that allowed you to do it because it's not it wasn't a hard programming feat to just sort of draw over a QuickTime. Yeah. But it just it's sort of fallen out of favor. So even animators at that time, they like felt that, and and the point is true that like to animate is to bring something to life right mm-hmm. and that if you're just tracing over it it seems like they're kind of cheating in yeah. a way so it kind of really had fallen out of favor right yeah because I, I i i looked it up a bit and i saw that there was like a kind of a rotoscoping machine wasn't there it was like they were projecting yeah. onto glass yeah yeah and then it was like taking out the glass panes and actually right. animating um which also is like uh there's some renaissance painters there was apparently some sort of a thing with um projections and reflections and getting something right. onto a canvas and then tracing yeah up to like the figures and things which almost seems like cheating as well right if, in, in the same way if you're going to be like 
the great renaissance painters and right. it's like well they're, they're tracing aren't they but not really it's it's like it's an amazing technique that they come up with and yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's really it's it's extremely laborious yeah and there's and i believe that there's there's expression in it i mean you could say like well taking a photograph is cheating you know like yeah, in that, yeah, same, yeah, in that yeah. same way and it's sort of like the the good thing is that i was never formally trained as, as a filmmaker or as an animator mm-hmm. and so when somebody sort of explained that to me, I was like, who the fuck cares, man? <laughs> like, like I just care if it looks cool. Yeah. And I think that that's the way audiences are too. Yeah. Like absolutely. you don't, you have these people who like sort of clearly define, you know, th- what a genre can be or, or what they can't be. And I think like, if you look at the work that I'm, that I do, it pretty much is trying to break that every single time. You mm. know, I, I don't like the idea that there are, there are rules that you can or can't do. I think you tell a story, you let the audience decide what, how they're going to engage with it. Yeah. Um, so then, okay, so Waking Life, and then next was Scandal Darkly in... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that film is, it's, it's a great film. Um, oh, thanks. It's, it's probably the best Philip K. Dick animation, ad- adaptation, I think, uh, in my opinion anyway. Um, and the only Philip K. Dick animation. <laughs> adaptation, <laughs> I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. Okay, first of all, what was your role on that film? I was a producer. Okay, so I think my question is, I think a lot of people don't really know what a producer <laughs> right. does necessarily. Right, right. So day to day, what was your role? Well, you know, Philip K. Dick is a sort of a, one of the, the biggest names in sort of adaptations around. Yeah. So acquiring the rights to do right. you know, these things are, are hard. So there's, 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 whenever you see a movie, there's like a, big list of producers right and i think like even scanner darkly there's probably like 12 producers listed yeah. some of them i've never met oh uh, yeah and yeah. you know or, and never would i would have liked to have. george clooney i produced a movie with george clooney <laughs> i met him you know oh so, he's a producer in that yeah too? yeah oh, okay um and so basically a producer um is somebody who helps get the movie made in some right. way um and then there's sort of creative producers who are more involved from the very beginning and inception of the the project so like with waking life and scanner darkly it was really just Richard Linklater and I talking at the very beginning mm-hmm. and sort of figuring out, well, what's the story? You know, how are we going to tell it? How are we going to go through? And then I like to be with the film all the way throughout the okay. distribution, release, and marketing of it as well. And I love all of it. Yeah. So, like, I prefer to be in production. Like, I love being on a film set. But I think that um, even sort of deciding what the poster is going to look like yeah. and all that stuff is, a, is another way to communicate what that story is. And, and you, you start telling that story the very beginning and like they see the trailer the poster mm-hmm. you know even the font that you use it's communicating something you know like that great poster right behind you you know like it, it communicates something about what that story is yeah and and i and it's all a creative endeavor and even finding an audience happens to be a creative endeavor yeah finding out how to get money to tell the story that you want to tell it was a creative endeavor yeah being able to tell the story around all the obstacles that you're going to come against is super creative, you yeah. know, like, and especially like with, in the case of Scanner Darkly, we made that with a major studio and trying to, to keep control of, of that, um, is, is a huge creative challenge. Yeah. So a producer just helps get the movie done. It, they serve the director's vision mm-hmm. and they try to maintain the integrity right. of that throughout. And when you're, when you're producing in that way, creative, being a creative producer, um, do you then kind of get itchy fingers? You want to be the person that's the, is your next, uh, yeah. challenge to be a director again? Um, well, I've always, I've always been able to do both and I right. enjoy doing both. And I like, they they both sort of satisfy me in a different yeah. way. And the thing 
with Rick is that like he was sort of a mentor to me. So there's never like this whole thing where I think like, Oh, I can do it better than him or whatever. (laughs) I really admire him Mm -hmm. and I, and I love the movies that he makes. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy for me to kind of just sort of, I trust him and I want to, I trust him more than myself in terms of the story that he's directing. Right. So it's very easy. It's like, what, what does Rick want? When when you're directing something now, would you show him some of the, you know, the dailies, let's say, and get a bit of his advice if he's kind of yeah, like, I guess so. I mean, I guess we did that. I did that recently with with Last Hijack. I think, and when he saw the animation of that, we started working on another project, which ultimately didn't happen. But it was sort of like it sparked another yeah. thing, you know, or or you know, a collaboration. Um, Is it like an ongoing conversation? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's nice yeah. to have someone to bounce ideas off, and you know. Well, he's a friend too, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. sort of That's like that, I mean. that yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean. And I and again I, I trust him, so it's sort yeah. of a great thing. Yeah. Um, okay, so I do want to talk about the last hijack before I, do, I want to talk about it for a long time. It's uh, so when I was watching the film, I it's it's kind of a non-fiction, like it's it is a documentary, mm-hmm. um, but it took me a while to kind of be fully sure if this was kind of real or not mm-hmm. because because it's, because it, as soon as you know it's real, it's kind of scary, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, so you were, you were so you were there. No. You weren't there. I was not there. But there was a film crew there. Right. I was, the plan was to go there, and then um, things got some worse. And then the film funds who put the money into these things, if you see how many different countries sort of put into it, uh, they couldn't take insurance out. And because I'm an American citizen, uh, uh, the American okay. government kind of said that if you go there, we will not help you in any way, shape, or form <laughs> if anything happens to you. And I became uninsurable. So we had to figure out a way to basically direct um, remotely. Okay. Luckily, we found a couple of guys who were Somali who do this for in the UK, and that's, they have the whole system already worked out. And Somalia has one of the best cellular mobile systems in the world. It's like better than in America. Really? Right? Yeah. And so it was done mostly through um, cell phones, okay. uh, pre-planning and uploading of uh, of the stuff. Plus, you go through Somalia, and like any plans that we made, sort of got changed immediately. Right. So. So you were almost like, uh, like drones. It was almost like yeah, yeah, directing yeah. by drones. The, o- the the other alternative was to go in there with sort of like, like a bunch of armed guys and yeah, SUVs yeah. or whatever. And and it was sort of um, like we kind of felt like that wasn't going to be able to get really close. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, and and I wish that we could take credit for it, but because they were dealing with such a small crew, it was really just um, a cameraman, sound man, and a reporter, right. just two two guys. Um, and they were Somali, so that they were they were able to get much more intimacy and access than than we would have ever have gotten. Yeah. Um, and so that that turned out to be sort of like, you know, whenever you make anything, you have these sort of barriers, and all of a sudden you have these plans, and then they don't happen. Right. But then sometimes they turn out for the better, and we had a lot of lucky things like that happen in this production. And did they have any connection to the subjects in the movie to get? No, close? they didn't know any, but all those people. So, I mean, a big part of it was like just even finding Muhammad as a subject took about a year and a half. Yeah, right. you know, was, finding yeah. the right person to that was willing to, uh, who was really a, a pirate, because um, yeah. there's a lot of fake pirates who do stuff for news broadcasts and things like <laughs> that, um, and to find somebody who was willing to talk about it. And he, Muhammad, was unique in that he never wanted to leave Somalia, so he didn't fear for the, any recourse to what he was saying or doing yeah. um, on camera. Right. And how how does that how do you, how does that start? How do you like? So you get the idea you want to do something about Somali pirates. Right. But how do you how do you even begin to try and hunt down a pirate to be your subject for a film? Yeah. You just start doing research and you just go out. But I mean, it's sort of like 
at, at the beginning of any creative endeavor, you kind of have that big blank page in front of you yeah. and you start thinking like, well, what am I going to do? And, and I think like we sort of like put together an idea and we wrote, you know, basically a script of like what we thought that it could be, mm-hmm. you know, and because you have to talk to other people and explain to them what the movie will be like film funds and things like that. And then all of a sudden, um, one day you have enough money to make it and then you're like oh shit (laughs) like how am I going to do it you know like and and like and that that's happened to me on every production I mean features as well you know like it's it takes so much time and energy just in terms of like trying to convince a lot of other people and like even if you're making it with your friends for no money it takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. to make something Mm -hmm. you know like you got to plan it get everybody together it's going to take some sort of resources how are they going to get fed where are they going to go you know what are we going to film you know how are we going to get it all together like so it's always, you know, it's great because it's such a collaborative effort, but it always takes so much time and energy to actually make something. And at that time, I've kind of made it in my head already. Mm. And then it's like, oh, man, I could just like go to sleep right now. But now I have to make it so other people can see what's in my head, which is sort of exciting. But it's also kind of like, well, I'm sort of done with the movie already. OK. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And so, so you haven't met Mohammed. No. no, and, no and nor have you met the Somali camera crew? Yeah, no, no, they, they came to Amsterdam okay. uh, when we were there. And so like we would watch movies with them mm-hmm. and we would sort of do shot lists and okay. things like that and sort of talk about like what, what we were going to be doing with it. Because also it was strange for them that because it was a hybrid yeah. and we're going to be doing animation as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, and again, we knew that, that the filming portion of it had to sort of mesh with the animation portion mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't even quite know how we're going to do the animation yet. Yeah. Cause it's not rotoscope. It's not rotoscope. No. Yeah. So we worked here actually with a, a, a company called Piranha bar. Right. And, um, and I sort of, I'd, I'd worked been, I knew the work of this like a uh, painter in, in, um, Amsterdam who did oil painting and was doing sort of 2d, um, animation. And I met Gavin, uh, at Piranha bar and, and I knew that we wanted to do sort of 3d and I knew that I'd, that I wanted to sort of capture the expressiveness of the rotoscoping, but I didn't want it to be rotoscope. So rotoscoping yeah. is just 2D animation, sort of tracing over the images. But the challenge was like, could we do sort of a 3D animation that it, that had some of that that human expression um, that the rotoscope had, but still be sort of pure animation? Mm-hmm. And um, and and so the the guys at Pranabar were pretty cool that they were like, even though I was pretty honest and I said like I don't know how we're going to do it, mm-hmm. but you know, I knew it had something to do with sort of the color palette. And, um, the, the thing about oil painting is that oil painting can be very photorealistic from far away. If you look at sort of the great, mm-hmm. you know, open where I'm surrounded, I live near the Rijks museum in Amsterdam and I can see like the Rembrandts and the Vermeers and stuff like that yeah. from far away. They look like photographs, yeah. but when you get close to them, you can actually see the brush strokes, yeah, yeah. you know, the mistakes and, and all that stuff. And I thought that, that the, there was something in that, that was sort of very interesting to me because I think that the problem with most animation is that it's too perfect right. and that if you could introduce sort of like mistakes into things, then it sort of becomes, um, more human. Yeah. Just something yeah. tactile about it. So, so, uh, we had a guy that painted a hundred paintings for us wow. and then we were able, we took those paintings, scanned them in and then the 3d animation was built around those paintings using those elements from those paintings. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting way to yeah. do it. And where did the, where did the image of the, Eagle come from? Is yeah, eagle? that was just sort of like, um, I was riding my bike in the rain one day. Okay. And, uh, and I was trying to think of like, well, what could, what could you like the, the challenging part of this was like, well, th- 
animation I think is super powerful in terms of storytelling because you can you can enter a subjective viewpoint and in documentaries there's so much pressure to just sort of be objective to it but we already knew that we just wanted to sort of throw that out the window right. and and I was always sort of fascinated by the idea of like kind of the the amount of moxie it would take to be in as like small fishing vessel and to overtake like a huge cargo yeah. ship, which is what they're doing. I yeah, mean, yeah. these are like really small boats that they're in. They go out there, they don't know anything. It's, I thought that it was like really organized and they would have like know who to target mm. and all that stuff. They go out there with like a little bit of food, a little bit of water into like a dangerous sea yeah. and they wait. They could be and there they, for like yeah. a long time. And a time. lot of them die. Yeah. Right. That's how they, most of them die. They die waiting in the sea. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, even in the movie, they say, like, you don't get enough to come back. Yeah. You, know, you go out there and that's yeah. it. You, yeah, know, yeah, you, better, yeah. you better get it. So they're actually fighting for their lives when they get onto those vessels, too. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know any of this, like when I first started the, the project. But the, the idea of that, like that, that sense of of uh, power, you know, when you do it. So like with that, that animation portion of it, it really was sort of like um, for me, it was sort of that that feeling of wanting to escape at the beginning. So like, so he starts floating away mm-hmm. and this idea of like transformation mm-hmm. and just do the predator and then finding the prey I thought was like a good sort of metaphor for yep. what it takes to, to come in there. And it also like signals the viewers very quickly on that, Hey, you're inside this person's head and yeah. this is sort of a subjective, you know, view of that. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very striking image yeah. the, the, when it comes down and swoops down and picks up the, you know, the yeah. cargo ship, it's a, uh, it's it's amazing and it's really yeah. beautiful animation. It's yeah, and so that was all done in Ireland. Yeah, just down the street, right? Yeah, so it's a it's a partially Irish production. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, I mean you know the Irish were the first people in actually. Okay. So like when we were we, you know you go to these film festivals and you start pitching these ideas, yeah. and Irish were first in. So right. it was like it was great. Um, and so did you the 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 camera crew? Did you meet them before? Yeah. And yeah. after? Yeah. Okay. So. You were, I suppose, you were supposed uh, suggesting or advising or, or, or saying what kind of stuff you wanted, and then yeah, they're full shotlets, lo- shotless, and everything, just like you would like any sort of normal thing. And in fact, probably because it was remote, we did even more planning okay. to it. But it's still like once you're there, it's not the kind of there, there's no central government in mm-hmm. Somalia, so it's all a clan based system, yeah. and you have to kind of go in there, and, and they have to negotiate when they travel. And I remember one time I was, I was talking to Jamal, who was the reporter that was there. And he's like, yeah, you know, we can't, we can't go and do the, you know, the interview today. And I was like, why not? And he's like, well, cause there's just a, there's a gun battle happening outside my room right now, you know? And I was just like, oh, okay, well, yeah, don't stay, stay, yeah. stay. you know, like, but it's sort of normal for you. You weren't like, we got to stay on time. Yeah. We got to stay on time. <laughs> get up I've got a schedule here. You know, I mean, there's, there's a huge sort of sense of um, responsibility that you have yeah, of you course, know, for, yeah. for that. And, and even though they were Somali and, and everything we asked, we kind of pushed them much harder than the, they had ever been pushed in, in doing sort of news uh, reporting, right. because we're asking them to do a much deeper story. Mm-hmm. And I think the first trip in, they came back and they were like, "No, we're, we can't do this," you know. And I felt really bad about that. And I said, "Well, hey, take some time, you know, reconnect with your family and everything, and uh, you know, let's see." And then, then I said, "Like, hey, come on, you got to go now. You got yeah. to finish the movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sort of, but just don't. We won't. We'll make sure that you don't." go in that long you know yeah. i was thinking about it, it must be like if you're in deep cover as a like undercover narc or something yeah. like the longer you're in it the worse yeah, it is yeah, you yeah. know or something uh, that, sorry go on. Uh, well i was just uh, like did did you get a sense of like fear from them often like no no i mean like i think that um again like talking to jamal 
even he lives in, in London now, but I think that um, the fact that he'd sort of grown up and, and been around that kind of thing, mm. he's, he's way like cooler and tougher than I could ever be, you know? Right. And, and, and I think that the attitude towards that, and I think a lot of people who, who live in, you know, dangerous places all around the world are just are tougher than people who yeah. don't live in those places, you know? Yeah. So it's, it, it's a really interesting way to make such a documentary because like on paper, Muhammad is, you know, very dangerous man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then like in a lot of the scenes, he, he seems kind of, I don't know, not that dangerous. Uh, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a very human portrayal of him it's right. of himself. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I can't think of another way of actually well, getting it, uh, scenes like yeah. that. You in know? a way, I, you, uh, I mean, I, as we were making, I started thinking like, it's sort of like the Sopranos, right. you know, like yeah. Tony Soprano yeah, true, is, yeah. is like this, yeah. like, You're you know, kind of the biggest Sopranos fan yeah, ever yeah. here. <laughs> well, I, and I love it too. Right. And you love it because it's at the, at the core of it. It's a, it's a, it's a story about a family. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's universal. And we all kind of understand that and we can identify with it. And, and he sort of like has the same problems that we've already always seen in like a guy raising the family, you know, whatever, but he just happens, his job is that he's a mob boss and he has to do some pretty horrible yeah, things yeah, and it yeah. becomes interesting, yeah. that dynamic, dynamic and how yeah. it sort of, you know, uh, plays out. And in, in many ways I sort of felt like this had sort of similar um, elements to it. Absolutely. Um, and it does, and, and you get this, the human side and he, he's just got these, the same kind of yeah. financial worries as everyone else. But then on the other side, there's, you know, you, you can, you see the, the wedding scene, for example, yeah. when he's there with the other men and they're kind of, you know, making this deal for this woman's yeah. life, basically. And, and then his kids, he's kind of estranged from his kids because he just left. Yeah, yeah. So there's those parts that are like, you know, they are real human things that happen, but they don't paint him in a nice light, you know. So that kind of, yeah, yeah. kind of you know, uh, that kind of adds to the kind of the pirate, you know, uh, personality or whatever, I suppose. Yeah, but yeah, but I don't know. It's very strange. It's well, I like I'd recommend anyone to go and watch it because yeah. it's like it's really hard to explain. Yeah, I, I don't know. Have you found have you found it? You know, I mean, it, the great thing about making a documentary is that like you get to sort of explore different cultures and and yeah. you know, and you can go in with an idea. So I, the basic idea that I was asking myself when we went into it was like, what would I do to, to survive? Would I make the same choices? Mm-hmm. And I think what what. I learned throughout this was like, and I think even the parents say this at some point in the, in the movie that he had choices. He could have chosen not to do that. There were options. I I kind of went into it thinking like, well, this is their only option to survive and blah, 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 you know, but I think that, um, you know, he did it because it obviously it was part ego driven, you know, like I think that he enjoyed that, the sort of the, it's kind um, of a rush or something. yeah, Yeah. You know, and I think that that's probably, probably again, that's not very far from doing crime anywhere, yeah. you know, that there's part of it is probably just the thrill of it as well. Um, and the sort of the, the, all those other things that come with it, you know, he had money and women and cars and all these other things that he wouldn't have gotten if he was working a regular job. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's always that temptation and, and, um, yeah, but you know, I think it was, it was surprising to really find out like really how civil, and how organized the culture was and how even though they didn't have the central government mm-hmm. that that there still are schools and you know yeah. l- laws in a way you know yeah. not in the law that we have but still it's sort of self-governing yeah yeah and and that clan-based system kind of works for them in that way and a really good study yeah. network you know yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, when, you, when you were uh, in when you were in holland you said amsterdam yeah, yeah. so um and and they were sending you the clips uh, via email or whatever. Yeah. Were you like, 
was it really exciting when something new was going to send you like what did we get like is it like what kind of what's that feeling like because you're no, not you're I seeing mean, it for the first time when it's done I, I wish that I had a great story to tell you but I okay. think like whenever you're you're getting anything even if like to feature a documentary you start getting the little pieces in and you're getting like little pieces of the puzzle and right. okay and then there were certain times that you got stuff. I think like the, the radio uh, interviewer, the the mm. DJ there, yeah. like that was an example of where I was watching it going like, I can't believe that, you know? Yeah. But we had the additional problem of uh, translations. And and again, there's not like a sort of a universal Somali language. It's again, there's very, there's a lot of different dialects yeah. and things like that. And we had a lot of trouble with the, um, translations and we had to go through that so sometimes we didn't really know what we had for a while you know getting into it but but definitely like that the dj or that radio scene i was sort of like i cannot believe this i mean it was really sort of all real time yeah and and i've had people say like is that like you know set up i can't believe it or whatever but i mean i have the footage with no edits where that stuff is happening right there and you can just sort of feel it and you can you can sense it in the in that footage yeah he's and he seems genuinely afraid yeah 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 you, you feel bad for people like that and you know yeah. when he goes outside then he's like looking under his car and stuff it's yeah like, and the story with the the grenade yeah, on that thing yeah <laughs> and there are the bits that are really kind of um yeah striking i mean visually the animation is very very striking it's it's beautiful um yeah. but then you yeah i don't know i i, I kind of went in thinking a lot of this is going to be animation and it's going to be really beautiful to watch and it's going to be a really interesting way to make your documentary but then some of these live action bits were really you know yeah powerful like and it's, and it's also it's also visually stunning too well yeah i mean the colors and and just sort of the 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 setting and things like that i always thought there was so much great production value in that because it's sort of like a like mad max dystopia or whatever in a way but with like nice pink you know buildings in it and things like that and again it was a real challenge to try to find an animation where you don't feel like you're just sort of starting and stopping the story yeah the because there's 12 12 animated sequences you know peppered throughout that and so what you want to do is have something that can weave in and out of that almost seamlessly. Yeah, it kind of fades in, doesn't it? It's not like, no. it doesn't cut. It's Sometimes like, it cuts, yeah. Does it? Yeah. I remember mostly it's the, the really, scenes that yeah. Um, yeah. it's like, it's really Muhammad, and then he kind of starts getting animated and the rest right. of the world behind, around him. Yeah. Um, like a, a, very, a, a scene that stayed with me very uh, strongly is his, when he goes back to where his house used to be. And he yeah. picks up the tree and he says, this was like the central right, right. pillar of our house. Right. And when it was, you know, during the day, we sat on this side because of the sun. And then, you know, and it's just, it's such a different world. You yeah. Know, the, the idea of how to, to live like that. Um, was it limiting at all <clears throat> getting the, <clears throat> excuse me, when you were getting the footage in every day or mm-hmm. every week or whatever it was to, to, because you're not there and you can't go, oh, shoot that. I know they have, they have shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, he discussed what shots he wanted. But like because you're not there and you can't say oh actually look over there just grab that shot or yeah. want more of that sunset or whatever the, the the shot may be was it in any way limiting did you ever have to go can you go back actually and just get a bit more of yeah. you know b-roll of that part of the city or something no well we we didn't really have that luxury but i mean i think there at some point you have to you have to play with the cards that are dealt you yeah and i think every production i've ever had it's sort of been like well if only i had more time and resources yeah. and shots yeah. and stuff like yeah. that it probably never ends yeah right but and and the and you can have the sort of the best intention of of what the film will be or what a scene will be but they have their own life too and you find that if you're trying to force it into something that it's not it'll kick back on you yeah and you can feel that so you have to really sort of trust what what it what 
it, it wants to be. So I always think about like, you know, uh, sculpting or doing pottery on a wheel, you know, that you, you, you have an idea and you start shaping it, but pretty soon the shape starts dictating what it is as well. Yeah. And I think in this case, it, it really felt like that. But I, because we were able to sort of add animation to it, the animations would sometimes recontextualize the live action before and after. Oh, okay. So it was really interesting to see how it would go. So what, what we would do, I would storyboard sequences to the um, live action uh, in certain spots, and I would try it out first to sort of see how it changes it. But it, it, it did have a strange effect in the book ending of the live action before and after. Right. And, and it felt like it felt like we were stumbling upon something that has a lot more potential. It felt like when it works well, it's it's sort of like probably the first time somebody did voiceover. You know, like I always think about like who's that person who like was making the movie. <clears throat> Maybe if you know film history, I I don't where the voiceover was the very first used the first time. Yeah. It must have been kind of mind blowing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and it felt like that that there's something in this hybrid format that I think can be taken even further. Uh-huh. Um, okay, just I think we, we're nearly out of time, but I have one, one more question I want to ask you about is uh, the family, his family, his parents and all the kids that he kind of saw for the first time when they were mm-hmm. whatever age, between two and five or whatever it was. Um, the, the father figure, the, he, he, he ended up having quite a big role in the film. Yeah. Um, and he was one of the characters I felt most strongly for. Yeah. He seemed kind of very upset that his son was doing this and he couldn't kind of understand it you know right and and i felt a, a connection with him um is there any character in it for you other than maybe muhammad because he's the lead um who you had a stronger affinity with well i mean when, when we we're when we we're first cutting the film you know and you're playing with the puzzle pieces like we were talking about um it really was sort of muhammad's story mm-hmm. and and again i was pushing for that and it wasn't working and it was pushing back at me um, it was only really when the father became a, a, a larger figure that it, that the movie fell into place for me because that I realized that that's actually your entry point into the story was a father's concern about his son, and that's that's universal. You know, that's the thing that like when you don't have to care about piracy, you don't have to know where Somalia is in a map. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't even have to have a dad. You just have to know what dads and sons are. Yeah. You know, in that yeah. relationship. <clears throat> And so for me, that was the, that's really the, the window into the entire story. Yeah. Okay. That's how I felt as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's convenient. Yeah. There you go. Well, you did my job. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Well, look, I think, the, I think it's a great film. I think it's yeah. a fantastic achievement. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Yeah. That was Tommy Pilata on the Head Stuff podcast. What do you think of that, Connor? I really enjoyed it. Yep. I really did. Really nice chat with him. Um, he, uh, very interesting guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, another one of these guys that you'd love to just talk to all yep. evening. Yep. And um, he seems interested in what we're doing as well. He followed us on Twitter. Ooh. Uh, yep. And uh, he wants to know. I don't even follow you on Twitter. Connor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Follow us on Twitter. Twitter. I don't use Twitter. All right. Um, 140 characters. Too little for me. At this head stuff. Follow is us that, on Twitter. Is that your Twitter? Yep. Okay. Um, I don't have a Twitter, so. All right. At this head stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. I follow was, your Instagram and I follow you around personally. You do? Yeah, That's you actually don't. getting really annoying. Yeah. Can you stop doing that? <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> my girlfriend's really not happy with that. <laughs> I follow her around too. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, and I'm not happy. Actually, we have to talk about that off mic. <laughs>
So okay. that was uh, Tommy Pilata. Um, I want to thank him for uh, for for coming onto the Headstuff podcast, and thanks to um, Glenn Hogarty for setting it up for us. Yeah. So also and to the IFI, you know, and to the IFI, yeah. we yeah we we um we recorded that in the IFI uh, just before there was a screening of the last hijack, sold out screening, a sold out screening of the last, exactly, and then there was a Q and A afterwards with 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 Tommy Pilata, um, which uh, we didn't have tickets for, fortunately. Yeah. But we were too sweaty and running around with all the gears, <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't matter. <laughs> they, they had tickets for us, and then when we arrived, they're like, mm, "You're a bit too out. You're a bit too sweaty." We give that to somebody else. Yeah, get out, please. Uh, Do the interview and leave. <laughs> so uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Subscribe and rate the Headstuff podcast if you don't mind. Uh, the five star reviews are the best ones. We like them. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and join the Headstuff podcast group on Facebook. Um, if you just type that in, you'll you'll find it. Um, also uh, just check out the website headstuff.org there's a review of The Last Hijack and there's also an article that went up about a year ago um, from one of our writers who was studying animation and filmmaking or in documentary filmmaking um, which is interesting thanks to uh, Video Blue for the theme tune thanks to Mikey for the artwork Uh, thanks to Connor for co-hosting and editing and producing and sounding 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 cool uh, so thanks that's what I officially do yes right. Connor Wilkins sounding just Look sounding it up. google that what do you do oh, sounding <laughs> sounding various things um, we'll be back next week with another episode um, make sure you check out the fascinating podcast this week as well uh, thanks and good night good night